0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA a member FDSE. Court Jefferson came to me about It the, totally reduces us to a stereotype. It's patronizing and... <laughs> that's Jeremy... That's Jeffrey. Jeffrey right. White, not Jeremy Allen. Not <laughs> Jeremy Allen-White. White. Right. White. Okay. Like really, but like being a very grounded intellectual exposition plot in a larger film, you can not simply... Warp through oh, time, yeah, yeah, like he's in the Hunger Games, isn't he, and stuff. Like the that. artificial intelligence has gone sentient. What you don't realize about things is yeah. there is magnificent did, aliens above he, us. He does a lot of that in Westworld. He sort of rushes and slows. He does the rush slow. He does the. I'm coming up with this, but how but t- profound? If we can't realize the aliens' potential, how can we defeat them? Anyway, American about- fiction. <laughs> Sorry, you just inhaled a colony of bacteria in the milk. (laughs) So I obviously make a cup of tea when I'm here at James's. And James has a very bad habit of having milk in the fridge that expired 100 years ago. And but, I, but i have new habitually milk. You, yeah you didn't tell me that i just saw the one i habitually always sniff milk because there's nothing worse than making a nice yeah, cup of tea then you pour the milk in and um it comes out as I, cheese i mean i feel like i'd cracked open tutankhamun's tomb and just like <laughs> wafted in an yeah. age old i feel like i've got a, an moon in my face now yeah i'll never forget uh as a runner once like doing office admin and like little sort of Office tasks. The head of production was like, James, whenever you're free, the staff fridge has just got a couple of things in it. you hard have to just go through and get rid of things that are out of date. And I was like, yeah, like I was really busy, so I never got round to it. And I got actually got round to it like a week later. And the sight, the, the office fridges sometimes, because yeah. no, no one's responsible for it. People forget lunches. There was a jar of pesto. To this day, I think I opened it and a hand like reached out <laughs> to grab me. But it was—it got so bad that it was fluffy around the rim of the jar, uh, like the the, the the mold had like beyond, got broken uh, beyond the void of space. It was looking fluffy. for a new food source. The, the Last of Us, it, literally. That's why you got to do weekly cleanings cleanings out of, your, of your fridge at an office place. Very boring, yeah. but like someone this had been like you know half a year. Oh, at least of just people leaving things. And I, just, I remember like it stunk up the kitchen. Once you start getting oh, yeah. it all out awful i sent i sent an, I sent a company email around did you <laughs> yeah i was like please uh could you dispose of your it was lunches more funny. i think the subject was you don't know what i've seen and then i just like told people please uh please don't do that yeah i went to um a nice film experience last week oh, yeah. i went to uh the cinema at on a Wednesday afternoon to see, Mm. not a current film, went to see an old film, went to see All That Jazz, which I won't be reviewing on the show, but uh, uh, if if anyone wants to see a Bob Fosse movie from the 70s, go see it. And it's very hard to find. Mm. And that's why I wanted to go see it because I was like, oh, they're showing it at the Prince Charles Cinema, which obviously in in London shows lots of old things. Mm. And when I booked my tickets, it was a fairly sparse screening room. And I thought, that's fine. And then when I get there, first of all, packed, absolutely packed. And I'm like, I to the point every seat was taken that I thought I must be here for the wrong film because I was thinking mm. surely you're not all here Only to I see would like this no but I mean, it's just more like there was a huge uh, cross section of people there i mean mm. talking young old arty. yeah Non RT, um, and I'm like, surely you're not here all to see mm. like Bob Fosse's 1979 film, all that jazz. Because like, <coughs> I've been tracking this film for years. I've been waiting to see it, but sure enough, everyone there was. Mm. And what was what was I didn't expect from this cinematic experience was that it was a piece of film. It was a, a reel of the film oh, from from the 70s. So okay. it comes up with the old BBFC. Well, I don't think it was, it was even called the BBFC then. Like yeah. national film logo. And like the holdovers, but legit. Literally, like legit, and it's like all oh, that jazz. And the 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 frames are so scratched. There's really? so much debris on yeah. each single frame. And at first, you're like, I can't watch this. It's like it's like watching someone sketch over the, yeah, the image. Yeah. But actually, it gives it such a nice quality. Mm. And also, the color had changed, had aged of of clearly of the film stock itself. It had yeah. this kind of reddish slightly faded look on it which you get used to Mm. but looking at it first i was like oh wow i'm looking at a watching a genuine historical Mm. article here it was quite nice for a change to see to see that It's interesting, like, you're, like, seeing a piece of history being bled through light. Yeah. Very nice, yeah. And I realise how conditioned we are to expect to see things in 4K remastered. Even from Mm. the past, you're like, why isn't this pin sharp? Well, the trend now is that, you know, we we design cameras and lenses that have no profile, no character, no distortion, no vignetting, no barrel. Like, now we're adding those back into our into our films. Like the best filmmakers shoot with vintage lenses from the 70s yeah. because they like character. But in like commercial world, you want to get rid of chromatic aberration and character. You want the cleanest image because you're usually being paid for like a high yeah. quality product. Whereas in cinema, you're like, actually I want the character introduced back. Like the new mm. the new Arri Alexa camera, which is like the camera that wins all the Oscars of cinematography, has film stock presets within the camera and you can choose the size of your film grain, the wow. roughness of yeah. it, how much of it there is, like baked into the image, you can basically choose a stock. It's that's, very cool. But that's why it's so You can't tell anymore. You, but you can choose it. That's the thing. Whereas in the past, yeah. you, that was all you could shoot with, what you had, now yeah. it's like, now you can mm. you can choose it. Yeah. Welcome to episode 114 of Pulp Kitchen. Don't know why yeah. I paused, forgot like for I forgot where now. I am. Yeah. Where am I? It's right behind you. Yeah. <laughs> um, Last week, we reviewed Society of the Snow and All of Us Strangers. And can yes. I just say, we got a great response to both of those films. It yeah. was really, All week, it, we had emails dinging in and comments on the YouTube video and comments on the social post. It was really nice yeah. to hear everyone's response to those two films, which have really struck a chord. And I'm sure we'll get to some of those in the emails later. I feel like Society of, snow, of the Snow really picking up with the film film fans. Yes, it's really, it's really... I'm really tempted to see it. I might try and do it this week. Yeah, and it has... Um, I was looking at the numbers. It has been this hit, and it's quite interesting when recent weeks when you and I have talked about how films when they go on Netflix they seem to disappear. Yeah. Streaming the streaming service sort of rollout can yes. be conducive to to films not getting the legs that they deserve but this is the opposite this is a film that's yeah. gone onto netflix had a limited theatrical release but yeah. went onto netflix and has become a word of mouth hit. And, where and that accessibility once you hear the word of mouth oh and it's on netflix which has quite yeah. a critical mass from film consumers people having right you're like oh great i'll just go and flick it on yeah. watch it on a tuesday and also um but also with limited sort of marketing push yeah like, like it's become a sort of a global uh hit because people are just saying oh this story is really amazing you've got to, go, got, got to go and watch it so mm. that was really nice to see and um J, J. A. biona director of Society of the Snow, even followed us back on hey, on uh, on Instagram, gave us a, gave us our review, a little bit of a share. So that was really awesome. So if him you haven't listened to those, go and listen to those. him and the lead singer of Busted. Follow us and Zoe Ball, and Zoe Ball, and oh, somebody else, somebody else recently followed us. Oh, and Benedict Wong. Oh, yeah, Benedict, w- an Avenger, an Avenger, an Avenger, I mean, Avenger. Yeah. I, I Benedict Wong. I don't know if you're listening, but hi, yeah, hey Just anyway, big hi. fan, big, yeah, big big fan. fan. Love to see you and stuff. We must collect them all. Collect all the Avengers. Yes, yeah. like we to. can start with the periphery assistance to the yes. actual Avengers, but we'll take them. We'll take them. I um, so think it. Falcon would be good. Anthony Mackie. Well, he's no Falcon anyway. He's now Captain America. That true. So yeah, you're how dare I. I. Yeah. We were so close. Oh. We would have got him. Um, we have three films to review for you today. Three. Mm-hmm. New mm-hmm. T- I know what you're thinking. What, two? But no, today we're doing three. three two of which are Best Picture nominees for this year's Oscars. We'll be reviewing American Fiction and... The Zone of Interest, as well as, completely differently, Argyle. We also had a chance to go to a and a with Jonathan Glazer for The Zone of Interest, so we'll give thoughts on yes. that. And our, we'll it will be part of the review, but him talking about the film afterwards, our mm. impressions of the film. And I know um, what you're thinking, ah, three films sounds great, George, but I'm always left wanting more. Mm, well, good news, because as, as ever, the there's a bonus coming That's- as there is every week. And this week we'll be talking about Netflix's One Day, starring mm. Amber Kamod and Leo Woodall. We saw a little cheeky preview of it, I, I want to say over six months ago. Um, and yeah, it's out. There was a film with uh, Anne Hathaway and Jim Sturgis from I want to say 2014. Jim Sturgis? What's he now? Yeah, I know he's a, he's always he's always popped up in things. Yes, you I've been never around. seen him, no offense to Jim Sturgis, have like a really consistent run of films. No. He's always been like oh, have yeah. you seen 21 him in 21 with Kevin Spacey and Has he been in anything in the past? Of of note, sorry to Jim Sturgis. I'm I'm sure you have. I'm just Yeah, I'm not off the top of my head, no. Mm. Mm. But yes, this is the Netflix show, very much sort of a uh, a child of normal people. Yes. In my eyes, I don't think this show would exist without the presence no. of and the hit of normal people. But we'll get on to that in the bonus. Absolutely. That's we'll coming later this week. But for now, three movies to talk about which we will we will begin by doing. Now. Core Jefferson came to me about it the It totally reduces us to a stereotype. It's patronizing and <laughs> That's Jeremy. That's Jeffrey. Jeffrey right. White, not Jeremy Allen. Not Jeremy Allen. White. White, Right. White. Right. Okay. I can't believe I, I always think he's better being a very grounded intellectual exposition plot in a larger film. You can't simply warp through oh, time. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's in The Hunger Games Disney and stuff the like that. The artificial intelligence has gone sentient. What you don't realize about things is yeah. there is magnificent. Aliens above us. He does a lot of that in Westworld. He sort of rushes and slows. He does the rush slow. He does the, I'm coming up with this, but how profound. If we can't realise the aliens' potential, how can we defeat them? Anyway, American fiction, written and directed by Cord Jefferson, who is uh, predominantly a TV writer, wrote Mm. on things like The Good Place and uh, Master of None, but also hbo's watchmen which was a fantastic series uh based on a novel by uh percival everett called erasure american fiction stars uh oscar nominated jeffrey wright tracy ellis ross oscar nominated Sterling k brown Issa Rae, eric alexander adam brody and many others love seeing adam brody in anything i, do, I thought exactly the same i thought he was thing. really good at this i like adam brody because i'm like you look good he's quite he handsome great and yeah. i think he can always do comedy and seriousness. He can kind of dip his toes. Yeah. He's quite, I find him quite a magnetic screen presence. I was just reminded of Seth Kern in The O.C. and mm. I just have such a soft spot for that character and him as an actor. And he, he pops up in so many weird things like Jennifer's body and Mr. and Mrs. Smith Yes, and this. He's around. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, so uh, the story of American fiction is this. Um, Jeffrey Wright plays Thelonious Ellison, called Monk by everyone. Great name. Thelonious Monk. That's why he's called that. Uh, he plays a curmudgeon, curmudgeonly college professor. Is there any other kind of college no. professor in movies? No. I'm thinking this, Ironically, The Holdovers, and Dream Scenario. <laughs> in, in just, that's the past like, three what months alone. What is it alone. about the sort of intellectual professor? Is it because they're just... They're so it, it smart, but yeah, they're, they're so they're hollow. They're always sort of depicted as being way smarter than other people, therefore nothing surprises them or interests them. And therefore they are also isolated and lonely. Yeah. But yes, so, so I'd like to see a movie just about a standard, normal, happy, tenured professor. But the irony about a film satirising stereotypes kind of has yes. a, yeah. <laughs> a professor stereotype. Anyway, that. so a uh, curmudgeonly college professor who hasn't written, uh, he's a literature professor and also mm. a writer, but he hasn't written in years, hasn't been published in years. He finds himself on a break from academia, um, kind of against his will, and ends up reconnecting with his family back in Boston. And this is a family that is kind of very much in flux. It's kind of this end of a dynasty feeling. They have this fantastic, gorgeous home. Um, the mother is showing early signs of dementia. The sister is struggling to keep it all together. You have Sterling K. Brown being a distant brother who is uh, in the th- has just gone through a divorce. Having his wife has dis- <laughs> his wife has discovered him is uh, in, in bed with another man. So now he's openly gay for the first time. And he's out, but he hasn't seen his kids, so he's very depressed. Um, and Jeffrey Wright um, returns, a Monk returns to this kind of uh, strange family dynamic, and at the same time, he's thinking about his lack of success. He's very much in a rut, and he's starting to realise that, um, in a very sort of satirical point, that if he actually wants to get published, if he actually wants to answer the demands of a very white publishing industry, he needs to, in effect, black up his writing and reduce... Uh, his writing to black stereotypes and exactly what what he, writing for what white people think they want to hear, and you kind of get this uh, satirical uh, wh- what I think is being sold as the plot of the film, but I will say it's actually very much just a subplot of the film. Yeah, this satire about uh, playing up black stereotypes in order to uh, to be to succeed with black um, to succeed with white authors and a kind of a white audience. Um, Like I said, that is being sold as the main point of the film, but actually, and to my surprise, is very much a subplot of the film. The film is much more interested in this kind of family dynamic and family drama with Jeffrey Wright at the centre. Oscar nominated for Best Picture, like I said, two acting uh, nominations there. I think Best Adapted Screenplay as well. American Fiction, James. Mm. What did you think? I had quite high expectations going in, given... (laughs) <laughs> the talent involved and the Best Picture nomination. Yeah, but when I watched it and came out of it, I think for me it's probably one of the softer picks for Best Picture mm-hmm. nomination. My my opinion, um, as you said, it's sort of got it fights from these these two fronts, which I think the family drama sort of light comedy side sort of s- snuck up on me a little bit. Yes. and I didn't really didn't really expect that coming. Um, but what I think is really funny is the central satire of. American literature, American characters. There's a really funny moment where he's just flicking through TV and it's like, and now some of the great cinematic pieces yes. of African-American history. And it's like cut to montage of slavery, ghettos, gangs, yeah. violence, poverty. And it, it, it is, is very funny in dealing with a white audience and a white white publisher mm. on, on that side, I think is really well done. I also think, uh, obviously, this, this is what this film is all about, but it is very rare to see... Uh, middle-aged, middle-class black people in cinema depicted as part of a sort of middle-class liberal intelligentsia trying to deal with problems as such as where to put our mother in a care home. You you do not see black characters really portrayed in this way, and I do praise it for that, and I do praise it for pointing its pen... At the other side and laughing and i think most of that satire is done well and i, yeah. I when i where i did laugh was in those scenes what i think disappointed oh, sorry, i think i think great performances from jeffrey wright and i really like the conception of his character um again not my i think i think a soft uh and stunning k brown who I, I really like a soft pick for for best supporting for yeah. me to, to to be honest but not like that taking andrew scott's it. place yeah yeah like totally like, absolutely um I think the for me where it, sort of, it starts with sort of two central themes that it fights from two fronts and the more and more I watched it and the longer it went on it seemed to kind of unravel for me mm. and unfortunately I thought the ending was disappointing and didn't commit to something that I think this film really could have led to. Yeah. I think that stops the film from being a... keeps it to being a good script and stops it from being a really great one that had yeah. something to say. I didn't like the ending and if you've seen the ending you know what I mean. I think this film because it was bold with its satire, I should have committed to something. And I feel like it was a little bit of a cop-out ending for me and it Mm. leads so i don't think it knew where to take it leads so hard into the satire and i was less interested in it towards the end um so a little bit disappointing considering my expectations but i didn't have a bad time with it i just never really got swept up in the in the film as a whole yeah i kind of i i agree with you in fact i even think i feel just a tad less favorable towards it than you i I definitely disappointing is definitely the word i thought when i came out of it i think that my, my disappointment was that, I mean, you would call it central satire. I do think that that Peripheral idea, satire, but but, yeah. it, but it, 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 that's the thing that that idea of him um, playing up uh, black stereotypes in order to sort of like um, trick a white industry is really interesting. Yeah. I think it's a great concept. And I think that's like, I said that's what the film is being sold at. And I think that is so juicy. And I was, I, I kept thinking this is underexplored because yeah. every, you get a scene of that followed by four scenes of family drama. Now yeah. I don't, mind the family drama necessarily being in the film because, as you say, I think it does a really great contrast of, on the one hand, in order to be professionally successful, he's having to play up black stereotypes, one-dimensional black characters. And the financial element he needs to pay yes, for his exactly. mum's... Uh, but on the care. other side, you're getting a, um, a three-dimensional family dynamic, which I, I totally understand from yeah. a script point of a structural point of view, why we have that dichotomy between these two elements. However, I just didn't find the family drama very interesting. Yeah. And, like... I think Sterling K. Brown's character is a perfect example. Sterling K. Brown, great actor, does a good performance, but again, a bit of a soft pick. He's not in it that much. And his character on paper is fascinating. Mm. Uh, A black middle-aged man who has been closeted gay and is going through a divorce and is now openly gay for the first time in his middle age, right? And is depressed. He is unfortunately kind of relegated to being very sort of super, almost just comic relief. He's going through this kind of depression where he's taking a lot of um, drugs, drinking a lot. And I'm like, I, that character deserves more. I'm not saying it's that character can't go through Jeffrey those Wright, things. Yeah. yeah, I was like, i I think that's he's more interesting than Jeffrey Wright's character. Yeah. But I would also like to be let into that character's world. I'd like to feel Sterling K. Brown's pain. That's crazy the stuff he's going through. Especially mm. then throw on top of it what's happening with his family and his mother. I would have been I would have liked to have been let in. So if you're gonna give this much time to the family drama, really let me into those characters. Really get me into it. And I never, I never did feel that. I just felt like I was spending a lot of time in this family home, not really connecting to anything, which is a, which is a shame. Um, I think that, uh, I, what do I think? That is my-, that is I, my I think like that, that lack of direction to me, followed by the ending, which I don't think made a decision, No, makes me look back on the rest of it and be like, well, you were kind of, bit, kind of meandering around yeah. here. Yeah. I also think that when it, it was as if it had gone, this is, if it had a really great yeah. rounding full stop to the point it was trying to make. It would have, I, just, I think, just sort of snapped the rest of it into focus, but it didn't. I got quite restless. Actually, I have to say, I got quite... I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't say <laughs> bored or anything. Like, I, I was I was with it, but I just... Did I got, was checking my watch a I, I did get restless, and I'm thinking, I, okay, you're not... Okay, I've, I understand that. You're not going to do the satellite we're going to do. Mm. The family drama really isn't as interesting as think you think it is. Jeffrey Wright's character, I'm getting quite tired of, actually. Like, Jeffrey Wright, great actor, don't get me wrong. Yeah. Doing good performance. But, like monk as a character is quite tiresome actually deliberately so sure, i'm not yeah. saying i have to like him <laughs> but I, I found his presence incredibly sort of after a while quite stale like i said surrounded mm. by very interesting characters mm. um i thought i like the, the funniest moments are sort of don't fall funny, out funny funny's a, beyond i funny's a, i'd say a strong word for this like well, i'd it, say like, witty. The, the, beyond like an snl sketch of like what well, when he's with his agent and they're on sure, the phone to the sure. publisher yeah. Those were some of the moments which I thought yeah. were, were good. Uh, and I wanted more of those. More, more of that, totally more of that. Like when he goes for lunch with Adam Brody, yes. I thought that was funny. Yeah. But for the rest of it, I, my, actually my screening was finding it a lot funnier than I was. Huh. And me and Talia were just like, you know, I maybe like chuckled a couple of times. But mm-hmm. Other than that, I did feel like other people were enjoying the film a lot more than I was.
1: So, maybe we're
0: maybe not. But I, 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 did come away thinking I don't. I'm surprised that's been nominated for Best Picture. I totally can't, can I be very cynical. Yeah, I almost think there's a slight thing of life imitating yeah. art with a, <laughs> a very, this, a very white d- <sighs> film industry, a very white Academy is gone. Oh, amazing. Oscars can't be so white. Uh, a, a, brilliant, a brilliant, like in the film itself, yeah. uh, got a brilliant um, black story and a brilliant thing pointing out about, Oh, you've laughed at us. Oh, we uh, find yeah. it so funny. Yeah. We Come find it in. so funny. And I'm yeah. like, I'm like I, I, uh, mm. the film has some great moments. And actually towards the end, there's a great scene between Jeffrey Wright and Issa Rae about the heart of what's happening, about the publication uh, of kids, this book. Yeah. And I was like, I really wanted more of that. But yeah. I, I I, think the film is, is not as good as I think the the Academy thinks and I'm and like, it's only the white professor comes in and goes, what are we talking about? Yeah, literally. <laughs> that's and funny. I, yeah. And I think, I don't know. I kind of feel like and I thought that ending was such a cop out. Yeah. But I kind of think, I think that's what's happened with the film in the real life is it's kind of been swept up because I think people have, have put a lot of pressure on this film to mean something greater than it is. And I think, mm. yeah, I'm like, I, everything you say is, is there multidimensional characters, yeah. family drama that you don't normally see. It's just not terribly compelling. Interesting. Yeah. 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 It's American fiction. I'd love to hear if other people had different thoughts to us, or if you received it slightly differently, or if you agree. As always, sending your thoughts to hello at and We will read them out on the show. So, George, you went to go and see Argyle. I did. Big film. The big movie at the moment. Big, it, uh, and not just big, it's on the side of buses. Yeah. It's had a book tie. Junkets. All the stars coming to the premiere in that very. Uh, I think an, an aesthetic I don't... I'm growing to slightly dislike, which is a very Matthew Vaughan, mm. sheeny gold title, yes. tartan tartan fabric uh, with with yes. like a title over it. I'd actually like to know your... Kingsman, Man from Uncle. Your, what the, it's not tartan, but I know... And, uh, the, what uh, is it? Like it's a, not a not blushed bonquette. The, with the diamonds. Diamonds, There's yeah. a specific word which for it. Which they're using King, Kingsman as well, because I think because of the suits, they have like a sort of, um, like a suit material a for, for Kingsman. that pattern. It's not yeah. checkered. It's like... No, it reminds me of like a, a, a... Jester, like a jester. Jester, yes. Like, like, a, jester like a nice card. bonquette on a on a train. Yes. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's the sort of... Anyway. Yeah. Yes, so Argyle, which uh, is a new $200 million movie directed by Matthew Vaughan. Matthew Vaughan, of course, who made the Kingsman movies, three of those. He also made Kick-Ass, X-Men Layer First Cake, Class. X-Men First Class. And I, uh, I really like Matthew Vaughan films until I don't. Right. <laughs> anyway... Um, Argyle has a cast, uh, a, a galaxy of stars. Henry Cavill, John Cena, um, Bryce Dallas Howard, Sam Rockwell, Brian Cranston, Samuel L. Jackson, Ariana DeBose, Catherine O'Hara, and that's not a spoiler one scene richly grant so uh, they're, all, they're all in there Amazing. i mean um, just just throw put him, in put there. him in everything put him in everything thank you very much oh and dua lipa as well um but i've forgot to mention her because she's in the see- movie for about as long as she's in the trailer She's not what the poster wants you to think the they post- want you to think it is a henry cavill uh, a spy, spy comedy movie. starring henry cavill and dua lipa so the premise of argyle is thus uh it's an original script an original idea by matthew vaughan uh Ellie Conway is a a spy writer, spy novelist, and she has a a successful series of novels called Argyle. And in the Argyle world, which we see recreated before our eyes, the, the spy of Argyle is played by Henry Cavill in a velvet ridiculous suit looking like a very buff waiter mm. and, a, and, a, and, a, and a flat top haircut yeah. which looks ridiculous but it doesn't matter because it's a fantasy world it's a fiction world mm. he has a sidekick played by john cena and ariana DeBose, and he's a you know a smooth talking bond pastiche right he's so ready to play bond and everything but bond yes he's like he's too old for bond now he won't yeah. be Bond, but no. it may be, maybe maybe he'll be a bond villain a one day bond. i think it would have been a solid bond. yeah absolutely and uh, in the real world, in the real world of the film, Ellie Conway played by Bryce Dallas Howard is a very, these books are incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. She's doing very well, but she's very lonely and she just lives life with her cat played mm-hmm. by Matthew Vaughan's cat. Big whoop. Um, <laughs> and uh, Matthew is, that, Vaughan, is it in the credits as Matthew Vaughan's cat? It just is his cat. Yeah, I don't know what the name of the cat is, but no. uh, by the way, Matthew Vaughan married to Claudia Schiffer. Did you know that? The model. For like years as well. Like a new thing, just there. And I noticed a few Claudia Schiffer books made their way into the background of certain scenes (laughs) as well. That's shameless. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, she she plays a successful novelist and she, like I said, very lonely. She decides to go and visit her mother uh, one day, played by Catherine O'Hara. She's on the train. And what happens, of course, is that Sam Rockwell, in full sort of Jesus beard and, and hair, sits down in front of her, who reveals himself to be an actual... Spy, a real spy. And he says to her, You have to come with me in a very sort of, you know, uh, any sort of mm. spy movie thing. You have to come with me because you're your in, life gra- is in danger. Yeah, your life is in danger. You're in great threat. And she goes, What? No, damsel in distress, reluctant uh, heroine, pulled away and whisked into a world of espionage, you know, uh full of spy movie cliches, blah, mm. blah, 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 blah. Um, here's the thing about argyle if you have followed the news recently you'll know that it has got some excoriating reviews saying it is uh, one star reviews everywhere one of the worst films ever made um i i can just say i'm not gonna i don't have as strong feelings about the film as that mm. i don't think it's a complete car crash but it is not very good and why is it not very good for a couple of reasons first of all for this film to work uh, it's a silly film and that's fine I know it's a silly film. Matthew Vaughan knows it's a silly film. Mm. We're all on board with it being a silly we film. We don't mind silly. We don't, we don't mind silly. Dungeons and Dragons was silly and it worked. We got time for silly. For this film to work though, it has to be fun and it has to be a little bit funny and mm. it has to be witty and, and kind of a bit a bit smart, do something. Mm. Uh, it's not funny. It's yeah. not charming. It's yeah. not fun. It's charmless, lacking charisma. Yeah. And incredibly derivative. Like that's Mm. what's so sad. I saw it and I thought, okay, well, you know, it's a new IP. At least we're getting, we're not getting a fourth Kingsman movie. We're getting Arga, which you've created, which is great. But it is, it's less original than an an existing IP. It's the same thing Mm. we talked about ages ago when we talked about Don't Worry, Darling, which looks like an original film but was actually so derivative of everything else, there's nothing original in it. So, I mean, literally derivative of everything. The whole reluctant heroine um, kind of uh, freewheeling hero dynamic between her and him, Sam Rockwell and, and Bryce Dallas Howard, has just been done so many times. I was even seeing like a bit of The Mummy, you know, between Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz in there, oh. done much better in The Mummy by that. Yeah. And, and actually Matthew Vaughn has said he wanted to kind of, he, he was taking inspiration from a film called Romancing the Stone, which which is a very swashbuckling um. with Matthew Doug, Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. So that kind of dynamic, like I mentioned about The Mummy, is there, but... Much better in The Mummy. Just just, yeah. just much better and more Mummy's charming. Great. I think Sam Rockwell and Bryce Dallas had, Howard don't really have any chemistry at all. Um, so it's also derivative of Matthew Vaughan films. It's what I think it looks so, like a Matthew Vaughan spoof. Where Matthew Vaughan... He, he does in this film what he's done for the past few films, which is, you know, cartoonish, over-the-top set pieces, uh, mm. fighting scenes, right? You know, slow-mo, camera doing around, full of moments of humour. I'm fine with that. That's mm. okay. But I have seen that before... Quite a few times. And also, with Kick-Ass and with Kingsman, those scenes of ridiculous cartoonishness were then punctuated by real scenes of violence. So mm. you'd have, like, the church scene in Kingsman, which is yeah. crazy, but you'd have people getting actually shot and you see actual blood. Or or in Kick-Ass with Hit Girl when she's going around with her blade, like, you'd see people actually getting you know, you, it's, it's given a little bit of grit underneath its fingernails. Mm. The problem is that this is cut for a 12A. So all the cartoonish sequences remain cartoonish and flat and, and, and uninteresting. And people mm. get shot and they just sort of fall to the ground. And not that I'm like a bloodlusting waiting for violence, but I'm like, these scenes are meaningless yeah. it, and they're just, they're just derivative of Matthew Vaughan. Um, the script is really, it, it, it's, just, it's just not funny. It's not charming and um, it's baggy. It's like there is humour in there, but the pacing of it is so baggy and the timing is so off. I was like, oh my God. The, the first, I'd say 10 minutes, I was actually on board with, it begins with a a scene from Argyle mm. in which Henry Cavill has to escape and she, he has to chase Dua Lipa and it's set in Greece. And I was like, I'm fine with this. I can see that it's tongue in cheek. I'm okay with that. I, I recognise that the dialogue is deliberately hammy, deliberately um, silly. I'm so fine with that. The problem is, is that, when that scene finishes and you go back to the real world, you realise that the dialogue is equally clunky and equally bad in the ostensible real world. You're like, oh, Mm. the film is not getting any smarter. Now we're back in the real world. Also, that opening sequence, however much I was kind of on board with it, it's, I couldn't help but think that, this was done better 20 years ago in the beginning of Austin Powers 3. With right. do you remember the beginning of Austin Powers 3 where it's like a chase and it's full of action? It's a, yeah, it's a helicopter. Yeah. And then at the end it's like it's Tom Cruise playing Austin Powers and it's Gwyneth Paltrow oh, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. um Danny DeVito is Mini Me, and it's like Steven Spielberg's directing, and it's yeah. a nice fun thing. And I was like, that's more entertaining, that was funnier 20 years ago. And in fact, Let's go full spoof the in ghost that, of then, the too. ghost of Austin Powers kind of lingers over this. I've not Ray, seen an I Austin Powers. I thought well, that. Well, I haven't seen Austin Powers in a long time, and I'm Maybe sure either. it does a lot of it doesn't hold up but i was thinking like what more do you have to offer here in terms of a bond pastiche specifically That's something to say but also specific, specifically pastiching bond in the 60s as well that kind of camp stuff i was like we did this yeah. we did this 25 years ago with austin powers what are we still doing here um the script is weak and i and I, so I, I don't begrudge the actors for trying their best for it, but i have to say and i wouldn't normally single something out but bryce dallas howard She seems like a lovely person Mm. and she has been in better things, but I'm I'm afraid that every time she is on screen, the film dies. Mm. She gives, it's all borderline expressionless at times. Really? And it just, I'm just sorry. It's every time the camera cuts to her, it's like a charisma vacuum. I'm sorry. I know this sounds incredibly harsh and I know she's not working from a great script, but no. she is the main character and the film really hangs on her. And I, It's like a train shunting to a stop every time she was on screen. And do you know what makes it worse is that she's opposite Sam Rockwell, who is one of the most charismatic, yeah. charming, charming actors around. Up there like, with like Mark Ruffalo can bring so much. Yeah. And I have to say, Rockwell carries carries this movie he's got argyle marks on his back from having shouldered this movie for two hours and 20 yeah. by the way two hours 220 Mark yeah. right yeah, yeah exactly Sorry. um no so that's it and 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 as a result i'm kind of watching this very it's not boring it's just a bit dull because it's a very empty experience it's mm. like when you just can keep Consuming crisps, even though you know you should stop, and the bag never stops. You just you keep just have dinner. Just keep putting it away, <coughs> and it's baggy and it's flashy, and it becomes quite in a way like so flashy. It's like quite a bit of obnoxious way of of losing two hundred million dollars. Yeah, I'm, I was looking at this thinking this is two hundred million dollars. So much talent, so much style for what? It looks like the shop front of a premium luxury designer. Yes flashy. Yes, it is. Flashy, Overpriced. empty. Originally, it was meant to be just for streaming and then with Apple TV and then Paramount. I think it's... No, not Paramount. It's Universal. They, they, they were like, oh, we're going to make this a big release. And yeah. I... I'm sorry. It's... it, it Again, I'm not... It's not a disaster. I wasn't angry with it in something the way I was like, like Five Nights at Freddy's, which was just making, making me seething. I was just sat there thinking, what's this? I saw it with, I should say, I saw it with my, my girlfriend and her mum and they both liked it. They they they, uh, they said, even... oh, it was kind of fun. They chuckled along and I was like, fine, but I didn't hear anyone else laughing. Yeah. And I was just kind of just watching things on the screen. Most people watch this film on a plane yeah. Oh and, my God! It'll be and a plain film. They will sleep through it, and they'll wake up, and they because w- the plot is also incomprehensible and Fine. silly, and also tied to nothing. This the essential uh, premise. Once Sam Rockwell has taken Bryce Dallas Howard, is like, oh, this shady government organization uh, headed by Brian Cranston um, wants you because you, everything you write in your novel seems to come true, and like you're on the so we're gonna to go to this place and, and like, we don't know what happened to this spy after this certain point. So maybe like, what would you say would happen in the book? And I'm like, okay, so you're telling me as an audience member that basically the plot is going to be written in, in front of my eyes. You're, you're literally going to make this up as you go along. The character mm. is going to make up what happens. Not based on any sort of designable skill. It's not like, oh, I'm going to have to use my real intellect to hack into this thing or whatever. It's just, oh, oh, let me think. Um, Well, I guess the character would do this. And I'm like, that's boring. Yeah. That's not interesting. What can I do with that? Come on, Argyle. It's interesting how, like, genuinely, before the reviews came out, it looked bad. It looked yeah. sheeny. It looked flashy. And I just don't think maybe because we're quite pressed to the ground a film telling me that it's slick isn't enough for me to believe it is I've, i don't the more to try to show me that it's so cool and slick and maybe it's going to be a satire of that am i going to go like oh wow yeah slick film i doesn't, also doesn't I, I kind of i knew it was off because like i couldn't really tell you what this what the central like hook there's not a hook for this film the, the the tagline of the film is the greater the spy the bigger the lie what the hell does that mean yeah, well, what does that what does that mean? When you look at that on a bus, what does that tell you? Yeah, nothing. Okay, when you saw the, when I saw the poster for for one day, two people, twenty years. I get it. Yeah. It's easy. Break your heart. The greater the spy, the bigger the lie. That. That sounds desperate. Like yeah, yeah. that tells me you don't know what this film is about. It will sit next to the sort of Ryan Reynolds action comedy graveyard. Mm. R.I.P.D. Yes, Six Underground. And what's that one he did? Hitman's Bodyguard. Bodyguard Red, Red Notice. Red Notice. Yeah, like very slick, very sheeny. Yeah, sort of. comes, goes. Great paycheck for Ryan Reynolds or whoever was involved yes. with the sort of contract for a streamer i um, and I, I think and it ends with also with a bit of like sequel bait as well mm-hmm. and i'm like oh I, just, I haven't talked about the most egregious thing in it sorry i didn't say yeah. I was like, oh, <laughs> here's me saying oh i didn't find it particularly obnoxious but then i did um it uses so the beatles had a new song out last year we talked about this right the final song yes, last you and did, yeah and it's a great song it's a really nice story about how that came together it works really well not only does that song feature in this film about three times it's actually part of the score they take the like the the main melody of now and then and they work it into the score so it's like playing over any sort of romantic scene or any sort of like threat it's just in there it becomes the sort of the motif Beatles, yeah and and i think it's and i'm like why is this in this movie because Mm. you have a song that's a piece of genuine artistry and you have this which is a piece of nothing yeah why are you uh, stop ruining matthew vaughan stop ruining this song for me It's funny because like 10 years ago i would have probably thought oh yeah like matthew vaughan could probably direct a really good bond film but i think the films he's made in the last 10 years make me think please no i don't want kingsman bond i don't want yeah. I don't know, that brand of um, subverting it. But anyway, that yes. was Argyle, guys. You. If you managed to catch Argyle and you had any similar thoughts or disagreements, please send them into to hello at popkitchenpodcast.com. We'll read them out on the show. Please note how I took one for the team there because James, James, I said to yeah. James, I was like, oh, I'm, to, I'm going to sing Argyle with Anna and her mum. Yeah. And you were like, in that case, I'll leave it to you. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen plenty of shit. <laughs> I've seen plenty of shit for this podcast that you've not seen, so I won't hear it. Like but, what? Um, Blue Beetle. Yeah, that's true. Um, what DC, uh, Some DC one seen uh multiverse of madness yeah quantum mania yeah well, i saw um, that i did see those eventually Yeah, but like in time for the show yeah so true. we could have a review out yeah. i saw it yeah i would have loved to have watched it on disney plus yeah. three months later yeah. in my yeah. own time <laughs> um but yeah Arthur. argyle Shifting gears slightly, actually yes. quite a lot. Yeah. Shifting gears a lot, resetting to The Zone of Interest, directed by Jonathan Glazer. We were very lucky to get to go see it at the BFI IMAX with a Q&A with Jonathan Glazer, I think it was, was it Mark Oddy, who is his production designer, and maybe his cinematographer. Forgive me for not. Uh, it was three of them up there talking about the film. Mm-hmm. Um, directed uh, Also, it directs films very infrequently. I think it's been 10 years since yes. his last film. He did Under the Skin, which I actually watched last night. It left me in quite a weird mood, but it was yes. also... Striking and brilliant. Sexy Beast, which has got a yeah. Paramount uh, Plus show, which we got to see two episodes of the other day. Um, loosely adapted from a 2014 book by Martin Amis, which I've not read. I assume you've not read it either. Yeah. Is The film is shot around the family of Rudolf Huss, who was an SS officer in 1943 and who was the longest-serving commandant of Auschwitz. Uh, and I think Sir Jonathan Glazer very clearly said the film is shot around and involving Rudolf Hirst. He said very clearly, I'm not interested in making a story about the life yes, of Rudolf yeah. It's It takes place around him and his family. It's not necessarily a biopic or a story about him. Uh, he was eventually executed in 1947 uh, during the Nuremberg trials. Um, and so this film is set adjacent to the atrocities of the Holocaust. Hearst's family are situated in a fairly large domestic house whose back garden lovingly attended to by his wife, played by Sandra Huller, shares a wall with the Auschwitz camp. It's not a field over or a few places down the road. It literally on one side is a garden and a house and children playing in a pool and going about their days uh, as a normal German family. And on the other side of that same wall is the unspeakable atrocities that took place at Auschwitz. Um, It's shot in, with many characteristics of a documentary, and he talked a lot about this process of capturing this family in a certain way. There are very much shots that are capturing life as it happens. There's mm-hmm. almost no camera movement. I say a couple of times the camera does move. It tracks the characters along mm-hmm. the wall instead sort of a long thing, but very much sort of on sticks, matter of fact, shot around the corner, seeing this family as they are. Um, and from the very opening of the film... Uh, I think Jonathan Glazer very clearly wants to indicate to the audience that you need to use your ears. You need to listen. The sound is one of the most important aspects of this film, where we start with film with a lot of uh, blank vision on screen, silence originally, a title screen, the ramping up of the introduction of score and sound. It sort of immediately indicates, please listen. Listening is what is very important in this film. And we're never given a visual confirmation or a visual aid to the atrocities that you hear. Uh, you only see brief glimpses of trains bringing people into, into, into the camp over the horizon, a slight angle of the entrance, to, of one of the entrances, I assume, into the camp. Um, shots, you know, and, and just a subtle indication of what might be happening. Like There's a shot of the family having dinner, and in the window are is smoke rising from an incinerator. Um, it's also set during a particular time in World War II. It's uh, set in 1943, where if you know anything about Holocaust history, the Nazis were starting to ramp up. Hitler's final solution. It was the ramping up of the full industrialised extermination of Jews in Europe on a mass scale. And the film sort of shows you the, some of the details of how that was discussed and how that carried itself out. Um, George, we got to see a really interesting conversation. We got to see it in, on the biggest screen in the mm. in the UK, which I actually found... Um, watching a film on a screen that big with subtitles yes. was a little bit, bit like playing Flicking visual tennis. Up and down, my yeah. eye. like there was these films so visually arresting and uh, it creates this very still watching experience. But um, I'm doing, my eyes are sort of jumping up and down yeah, trying yeah. to catch the subtitles. But George, the zone of interest, yes. very powerful film. How did you get on with it? Uh, I mean, I will, yeah, I mean, I'll begin by saying, I think it's a really interesting piece of work. Yeah. That, and you know, if I, I'm going to talk about it at length, but in, if, as a word, I would say it's just chilling bone chilling and unfolds this quiet horror just on like the methodology of like Glazer's approach to the film which i think is really interesting you just touched on it's like what's clever is that auschwitz in the film is in a way what the holocaust is in our consciousness today something that is both very immediate and also made peripheral yeah and that's what we live in a time when you know, it, it has never been more urgent, never been more relevant. And, and the scars of that period, you know, still exist. Yeah. And yet there are huge factions <laughs> of society which deny its, its existence, downplay it and and seek to kind of uh, alter the, the facts. And I think that's a really interesting sort of visual metaphor straight away. And Glazer spoke about being very aware of the kind of the way the world was changing when he was making the film. And it took 10 yeah. years to make as well because he makes things with incredible precision and you can tell. I quite appreciated, by the way, like hearing him discuss the film and uh, witnessing his demeanour, the way he talks about his art and seeing how he would yeah. have gone about making it and the yeah. time he takes and obviously the process of which he made it as well. And and he, he, he refers to this, this whole construction of the film. Like he, he said, there is the film you see and there's the film you hear, as you just mm. talked about. And like you said, the, the film you see is all about Rudolf Huss, but but the film you hear is the film he actually wanted to make. And this the whole Rudolf Huss uh, is a this p- p- perpetrator perspective is a framing device through which you can look uh, you can capture yeah. the, the horrors of the Holocaust. And he used this term in the QA about the grotesque domesticity yeah. the, of of the banal existence of Huss's family in that house right next to a death camp and um, he talked about carefully constructing the environment to make it a period they they reconstructed Huss's house yeah. but uh, everything and they made everything inside incredible 1943 period detail yeah. and they minimized the presence as much as possible of cameras and 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 they didn't want the actors to feel like they were on a film shoot they wanted yeah. the actors to feel like they are in a almost like a theater piece a 360 1943 experience he talked about rolling camera for 45 minutes exactly. at a time just trying to, to capture moments and then from that he has constructed his film exactly and he talked there was no no lighting used in the entire film yeah which it, i thought I mean, was incredible and it almost looks- practical lights, but not uh, sort of artificial. And and I don't know, I don't think this is true. But it almost looks like it hasn't been color graded. It's like he uh, very neutral. The, yes. does, he's talked a lot about I don't want the presence of my filmmaking to be known. I don't want any sort of style, yes. any sort of effect to have been used. So that's what brings me to my first point: is that so Glazer is very when he spoke in the Q and A, it's clear that he's very very cognizant. Of the dilemma and the problems filmmakers have when trying to capture something like the Holocaust totally. on screen, right? And saying something new about it as well, it, and not yeah. reiterating something or something that and else has said. He's, he's aware that the inherent uh, apparatus of cinema can, if not careful, uh, stylize, aestheticize, fetishize, empower its subject. So when you come to t- talking, showing the unshowable and depicting the unthinkable, how do you do that in a way that is not uh distasteful so um, for example spielberg famously shot Schindler's list in black and white some people have said that the black and white Schindler's list is almost too gorgeous it's a deep black and its right. deep but it almost looks too nice but for example spielberg decided to shoot Schindler's list in black and white son of saul a few years ago shot everything in a tight close up and everything yeah. the horrors of auschwitz were shot in a you know in peripheral and out of focus and what glazer has decided to do and i think very it's very effective is this perpetrator perspective, like I said, where everything is, you never see, as you said, Auschwitz, mm. you just hear for horror. And I think the combination of those two things is, is, is incredibly effective, incredibly chilling, incredibly haunting. Um, you mentioned Under the Skin. Glazer knows how to kind of do horror. I wouldn't describe Under the Skin as a series of horror film, but it's deeply uncomfortable and yeah. unsettling and has imagery that is very difficult. And what I realized when watching The Zone of Interest is that he is a really interesting filmmaker because he or, he gives you the visual ingredients and he gives you the cinematic ingredients that you need to then make the film in your head and to right. go away. And there's a, there's a phrase that Paul Schrader, the, director, the writer-director, said once, which is that a good film starts when you leave the cinema. And, it's, and that is exactly what you'll have when you see the zone of interest. You'll see it and you might find it confusing confounding because there are moments as well talking about horror of like deep surrealism and abstraction and violent use of sound yeah but you come away and it will haunt your mind and for the next 24 hours or longer it will percolate and you will have almost the film in your head and that and that residue is what is the power of the film so it's the cumulative effect of what he's doing and Mm. it, it shows because in the q a as you talked about his conduct with the audience he was saying um, you know, a lot of people try to sort of basically ask him what certain bits mean, because mm. they're, they're quite obscure. And he said, with certain elements, he was like, well, I don't need to explain myself because it's on screen. Everything mm. I want to, exp- the way I've expressed it is on screen. I can't express it That's in any other way. That's how I want to express it. It's on screen. And I don't want to say what it could mean, because I don't want to rob you as a list- as a viewer of your own interpretation of that yeah. and reduce what you thought about it. And I think that's brilliant. And I think that is what The Zone of Interest is all about is providing you with stimulating, provocative, unsettling imagery, unsettling cinema that you will come away and, 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 and piece together and have this kind of haunting sense in your mind. That's what I think is great. I will just say, there is a couple of my... The only, my, I, my only slight reservation is that I think there was a few times that I became very conscious of it as a formal exercise, this contrast, this juxtaposition between right. the domestic and the horrible, you know, the, the, the horror. And there was just a few times I was like, I, I've i got the juxtaposition, I've, I've understood the horror, I've got what you're doing here and the formal contrast. Um, what else have I got to go, what else have I got to explore within myself now and mm. what else have I been given, apart from just saying that this is a visual, that, that this is a formal contrast. So... That's a minor thing, um, but other than that, I think it's a really, really kind of staggering, haunting piece of work that exists mm. beyond the cinema screen. There was an interesting question in our screening where someone talked about uh, film being used in education to yeah. sort of tell, like, you know, inform people about the Holocaust and someone, you know, pray, I think she praised the film for not being rated 18 that makes this mm. more accessible as an educational yeah, tool for the Holocaust. 12, I and I think, you know, almost thinking about this as an educational film, it obviously does provide an insight to the Holocaust a certain way. But it doesn't, for me, sit, not as a criticism, I think what the film's trying to achieve, sit in that film, which is come and sit down and let me tell you about the Holocaust. I yeah. think there are many other films that are better at doing that. I think Schindler's List, for example, yeah. is better, the pianist even, of giving mm. you a personal story and taking you through it. And A lot of the great Holocaust museums I've been to, I've been to a great one in Washington, D.C., yeah, yeah. and one in Jerusalem, Yad Vashem, is incredible. You're often um, given, uh, I think in Washington, you're given one person and you can track mm. their journey through the holocaust and the entire museum and then yad vashem is this architectural experience that tells you Mm. a story i think the decision in this film to not really have protagonists as such but Mm. to use hoss's family as a tool to frame a story and as you said leaving you with just your own feelings Mm. once you're done Mm. is such a powerful decision that makes this film so effective i agree i think it's one of the most violent films i've ever heard but that's and it I, yeah and I yeah. think it was deeply unsettling from when it started all the way through to the very end of the credits the credits forced me to be quiet and listen to them which we were, we were obviously going to stick around anyway for a Q&A but the use of sound and the rising I think the most intense part of the score is the crescendoing sound that happens in the mm-hmm. credits and if you know about what's is going to happen next in history. Mm. That music and that Mm. following of darkness had a really deep unsettling effect on me. I will just say also on that point is that um, because a strange thing happened, because we were having the Q&A afterwards, the lights kind of came up, but everyone had to stay. And so, typically in a cinema, that they would let the credits play out, and people would kind of shuffle out quietly. But yeah. people kind of sh- started to shuffle Sides. in their seats. And you and I, though, were I, just just co- like, I just, I just, I couldn't quite speak to you yet, uh, yeah. and I was still, expe- I was still like trying to process this film, experiencing the end of the film, which is very vague. Yeah. And specifically, what he does with score, which I think is really, I think it's oh, a yeah. really clear. I totally understand what he's trying to do with the credits there. find it d- deeply uncomfortable, deeply unsettling. Some of the most sickening shots for me. Were watching uh, Sandra Huller's character, I said, she's just brilliant in in this as well. She's really a top actress. Um, Just some of the most sickening shots were her showing her mother, who's come to visit them in this Mm -hmm. house, the garden and just talking about, well, you know, I'm hoping these can grow over and this will be quite nice because it's come over here. And for her, it represents everything that her indoctrination would have told her is the perfect German life. A house in the countryside, father living very mm-hmm. near to work with children that have space to run and yeah. play. And it's just sickening to see this person move through this yeah. space. And I just found that really, really difficult, yeah. if you know. And, and there's a similarly, sorry, if yeah, no, it, with, not with like the talk. mother-in-law, there's a line With the mother-in-law comes to visit and um, sorry, so it's Huss's mother-in-law, yeah. Sandra Huller's mother, comes to visit and she's sat in the kitchen and she, she's just arrived she's having a you know, glass of wine or whatever and she's like oh, we had a terrible journey here. We got delayed at Krakow for an hour and the train was so hot. And Actually, somebody fainted. And I was like, that is so uncomfortable because you're talking about your benign transport experience yeah. from Krakow to Auschwitz when we know the Jews were loaded on cattle trucks. Yeah. And uh, said, I, it's just, it's... Ugh. And even when she mentions the, like, I think some of the sounds and some of the terrible things that are happening, Sandra Hiller just goes, ah, a, you know, it's whatever. Like, she doesn't even want to yeah. engage with it. And I like, said, so visually, the... The, the, there's a cycle of sounds that happens in this film. Yeah. There's visual, you see the steam of a train yeah. bringing people mm-hmm. in. You then hear the sounds of people being rounded up and shot and despairing. And you hear the sounds of people banging on gas chambers. You hear the sounds of incinerator and the cycle repeats yes. itself. I'm not sure that, I didn't actually think that was the sound of people within the chamber. I think it was just the sound of the mechanization of the whole thing. But, yeah, but could either be, way. Could be either. But you that's, are, I mean, that's, also, that's also what the film shows as well is it's the industrialization of death. Yeah. It's the mechanization of death in which you have mi- meetings between German high command yeah. about talking about something that is a logistical issue for them. They might, they could easily be talking about parcel delivery or, yeah. or uh, clothes production, war munitions being exactly. sent around. But it's and like, it's, oh no, we have this amount of product, are you that ready that to receive to this many people in this and period of time? Yeah, incredibly chilling in that respect. Uh, it's like the, the uh, <laughs> the, the monster in this is the. You know, you think about Am- Amon Gert in Schindler's List, played by yeah. Ray Fiennes, probably one of the worst monsters ever portrayed in yeah. cinema. If you've seen that film, you know. But like, there is no monster in this film. Yeah. I don't look at any individual character and think that was the atrocity. The atrocity is yeah. the complicity in it and the sort of the, the contrast between what is yeah. otherwise very domestic and benign. And I think, going back to the horror element, It's like the monster and the horror of the film haunts everything like a specter. And Mika Levy does the score for this in the same way they did the score for um, Under the Skin. And I I, I was thinking about the zone of interest, the music that they use in it, um, which isn't available yet because I wanted to go and find that that Uh, horrific final track. But... um, it just made me think that I think Mika Levy is up there with like one of my favorite contemporary composers yeah. for films. For films was up there with Johnny Greenwood, other world sounds that you can't that just necessarily place. This, yeah, and it, and and the and the sounds at the beginning, but particularly over that final credits, is this—it's indescribable, really. But it's this yeah. awful growling, horrific, high-pitched choral element that is is like grotesque but yeah, powerful, so powerful. Captures the imagination, and, I, and I think it's it it's it's brilliant. And again, this haunting spectre throughout and these also sort of strained growls. Do you know the yeah, growls sort of, of that'll bubble and, up yeah. within within scenes. You'll just yeah. suddenly hear like a you drum. you know what, you know usually when we talk about films that are thematically completely different, we talk about like we, film is often it's will criticise a film for looking like it's made itself up as it's gone along right. and not quite had a clear vision of what it wanted to set out to make. Like Argyle. Like <laughs> Argyle, or just like any of these films that feel like inc- big studio films that yes. never really stuck to the script. Do you think about these long 45-minute takes where I think he in the best kind of way, didn't yet know what form this domestic visual element yes. would look like. And he talks about filming this boy playing with his with his toys while the sound of people being executed is happening literally 50 metres away. And then there's this one really interesting scene where the boy goes and hears something, goes to the window and closes his window, but is he not quite old enough to understand yeah. what's happening, but knows that the sound yeah. is unpleasant. Yeah. He, fl- uh, he, he, fl- he flicks away and sort of, he hears something he, that hears he really something. shouldn't, and then he flicks away in a way that, that's like oh. a boy well, I thought it was like a boy hearing something that he shouldn't do and yeah. not comp- not knowing what, what to do. He, I think the boy knows he's heard something horrific but doesn't yeah. know what to do with and it. Doesn't quite under- and doesn't yeah. understand And it. does doesn't not understand privy it. to yeah. the information. Uh, just th- 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 that format of mm. finding something on the day that you shoot it yeah. just is, it really works for this. Yeah. And is very, very... Um, I don't know what that sound is. I think they're testing the fire alarm, but anyway. Yes, um, interesting. But yes, the zone of interest i think it gives us a top top yeah. praise from us definitely go and see it please see it in the cinema absolutely please, please. absolutely if, see the if not for the visual and just for the fact that it's going to sort of take you out of the rest of the world for the sound i, I think, think it's so yeah. important to see i think actually it's quite the film is so carefully constructed the sound is like everything and as a, almost like a piece of theater that you really have to yeah. out of respect oh, it i think feel go feel see like it theater, yeah. go and see it in in the cinema um yeah terrific and we'd love to hear what people think of it as well yeah the zone of interest. Um, Please let us know your thoughts at hello at popkitchenpodcast.com. But definitely the best film we've spoken about this episode. Yes. (laughs) George, should we go through some of the emails that we get sent into the show every single week? Love it. Love the energy. Great energy in the studio today. Uh, Guys, if you wanted to send in your questions, your thoughts, your concerns, you can do by writing into hello at popkitchenpodcast.com. Just bevan did bevan writes <laughs> into the show <laughs> and says hello there. how's it going i thoroughly appreciated the movie suggestions i did find myself so- uh, bevan, bevan, bevan had heartbreak. a heartbreak huge yeah. news pop uh, kitchen uh, but you know we sent her some heartbreak recommendations yeah. uh, she says i did find myself in the world of tolkien as recommended by james can't beat a bit of legolas to soothe a broken heart they're taking the hobbits to Isengard. <laughs> also i went to see the color purple brackets 2023 yesterday i have seen the original and the stage production uh was so was looking forward to this new version the performances of the Central cast were absolutely brilliant, particularly Fantasia Barino, who played Celia and Danielle Brooks. Who played Sophia? The large dance sequences with big ensembles were also fab. However, I felt very let down by the sound design. There were multiple times I noticed that the voice of the actor would be heard, but their mouth was not moving, uh. or the singing with the audio wasn't great. The singing itself was incredible, but was definitely recorded in a studio, so we lost that raw feeling on screen, making some of the musical numbers feel a bit hollow. Great job on the pronunciation of the Irish last week, by the way. All my love. Bev, I've noticed in a lot of films when they shoot the over-the-shoulder shots, yeah. when when the person whose shoulder you are shooting is talking and their mouth doesn't sync up. That happens surprisingly but a lot once, because they yeah. want the reaction, but not the. I had noticed, and then uh, Anna pointed it out to me. And then once you notice it, you can't look back. It's particularly pre- noticeable in things like sitcoms where you're switching yes. from multicam. and they need yeah. Indeed, yeah. Um, um, you know no, what? Sing- single cam, multicam there yeah. yeah. There are multiple cameras. So. Yeah, um, uh, you know what uh, was you can praise Tom Hooper's lay is for is that uh, there was a real rawness to uh, its yeah. musical performances because they were sung as you saw it, yes. uh, in front of camera. It wasn't recorded. Why don't recorded. they do? Do that, that more. Yeah, that was, really was good. good. Yeah. I, and all the singing's in all the singing in it is really good apart from Russell Crowe. Yeah. I, I like Which I could have told you before I'd seen it. I think you know, I I've seen that film a few times, not for a while. I've but seen but it I twice. Like, I, like, yeah. I like Les Mis and I actually quite liked that film. And I thought when they did the Anne Hathaway I Dreamed a Dream, oh, one unbroken great. take in sort of a dark room of just the raw performance. Great. Brilliant. Yeah. She sort of talks through it. And... A lot of people were very mean about that film. I know. And yeah. I think they just didn't like musicals, so go away. That's coming out. Thank they're you, they're re-releasing that this, this month in cinemas, remastered in Dolby or something for the, for the better right. sound. Okay. And if you look at the poster they've done for it, it's fine. But Amanda Seyfried's hand is too big for the hand in relation to her body that's grabbing Eddie Redmayne's face. Oh, it's a bit dodgy. That's A bit of a dodgy Photoshop there. Anyway, anyway, this next email is from Ollie, who says Barbie snubs at the Oscars. Hi James and George, George and James. Every year there seems to be a debate that rages on social media whenever the Oscar nominations are announced. 2024 has been no different. This time the major controversy seems to centre around Barbie being snubbed by the Academy mm. despite receiving eight nominations, the fourth most of any film that year, um, due to neither Greta Gerwig being nominated for director or Margot Robbie for best actress. I understand that with the themes of the film and the nomination of Ryan Gosling for Best Supporting Actor, um, he, whose role as Ken is the, in the film is, is simply essentially to represent the patriarchy, on the service, it looks quite jarring. However, Barbie wasn't a film that was made for award season. So if anything, no. the fact that it has received eight nominations, including Best Picture, should be seen as a remarkable success. Greta Gerwig was able to create a film which had an important message around patriarchy and feminism that also had mainstream appeal. Barbie was the highest grossing film of 2023 yeah. with the box office approaching $1.5 billion. That is huge. That is that huge. Is huge. Yeah, huge. which shows just how much it appealed to and was enjoyed by its audiences. I think it was absolutely the right approach to create the film this way. However, there is naturally a bit of a trade-off between creating a film with such mainstream appeal and the highest artistic quality in directing and acting. Mm. The Academy and the film industry as a whole has long discriminated against films that are made, for, made by and feature women and people of colour and it still has a long way to go. However, in the case of Barbie, I struggle to see how either Greta or or Margot can replace any of the nominations on on merit. And I think there are certainly more egregious exclusions in these categories, namely Celine Song and Greta Lee for Past Lives. Ultimately, as we all know, awards are a bit of a nonsense anyway, and people should just enjoy watching these films, whichever whichever films they choose, regardless of what anyone says. Love the pod, sirens on my end. Best wishes, Ollie. Lovely email. The Barbenheimer films, Barbie and Oppenheimer, in case you didn't know, are are two films that, of, in my living memory, um, ha- I've never seen so many different opinions being expressed about both of those films. A yeah. number of times I hear on podcasts or on the tube or just from friends that were like, oh, I thought Oppenheimer was amazing. What, that's just brilliant. And other people going, I thought it was shit, yeah. boring, long, no terrible female characters. And the same for Barbie. Some people like Barbie was yeah. the most fun I've had. So good, so funny. And then the complete opposite. Oh, just pandering, this and that, not funny. So I, I, I cannot place those films with other people. Yeah. It's such a marmite. For everyone. Yeah, that's absolutely good. Yeah, good point. I also think that um your your email is really good, Ollie and I thank I think you. Friend, th- of f- yeah, friend of the show. Friend friendship. And and the thing is that um the uh, this is this, this idea that um you know oh my god they make a film about patriarchy and feminism and who do they give the Oscar to the Oscar nomination to? The guy. The guy. Well that's not true. First of all, you gotta understand obviously uh, Ryan Gosling didn't take Margot Robbie's place. Yeah. Ryan Gosling is in a supporting actor male category. Yeah, Margot Robbie was only in a category against other women for best actress, yeah. right? And- you know so there's no there's not like he, he took it away um, also um, as we did a Film Bites that was coming out soon might have already come out we don't know it's coming out soon with uh, Ailish Morrison uh, mm-hmm. and I don't know if this will make it to the edit but she made a good point because we talked about it when yes. we saw her and she was like Margot Robbie did get nominated she got nominated for producer she produced yeah. Barbie and that is her nomination for best picture yeah. Why no, we should be celebrating that and as Ollie says we should be celebrating all the nominations the film film made 1.5 billion she's alright yeah. yeah, I'm not worried about Margot Robbie yeah. being able to get roles and, and, and pay her bills yeah. this year it's I, it's quite knee-jerk lazy uh commentary from people to be like oh my god what a, snub. It's a surface view look at the nomination like hillary like, clinton what? writing the you know saying oh greta and mario <coughs> stand with it it's like i think as ollie says it's done all right Come People are like is is ryan is ryan gosling not gonna boycott the oscars it's like no, no. He, he he receives that nomination on behalf yes. of anyway. anyway uh, this next one's from Claire, who says, "Hi guys, welcome to my favourite season, award season brackets. Name the show. Just listen to your Oscar Sorry, reaction I episode. I don't actually disagree with all the points you make and who you think will win, but I wanted to weigh in with a few points and questions. While I'm sure, guys, we did a sort of reaction to the Oscar noms a couple of weeks ago. If you want to check that out. Uh, while I'm sure it's been this way for a long time, if not forever, the talk of who has the most buzz, who has the best campaign for winning, makes the whole thing so mercenary and less of a simple judgment by Academy members of who. They preferred this year. It feels like a veil has been lifted on the glamorous Oscars and leaves me feeling icky. Icky. Uh, You touched on the story for some of the nominees that makes a good headline and can tick a box or pull on a heartstring. All this does is overshadow their actual achievements, in my opinion. Do you think I've been naive in the past, or do you feel the campaign element is more of a thing? Cite Andrea Riceborough nomination in 2022. Mm. You call Oppenheimer the success of last year and talking about its inevitable win for Best Picture, but in your review of last year and listening to your reviews, Anatomy of Fall and Past Slice seem to have much more of an impact on you. Shouldn't the winner be one of those and not a film that was everywhere? I'm not knocking Oppenheimer, but sheer success in marketing doesn't make the Best Picture, otherwise Avengers Endgame should have beaten Parasite. It's difficult not to be annoyed by the omission of Greta from the Best Director category, which does, which does mean there's no chance of Barbie winning Best Picture, which, which does mean there's no chance of Barbie winning Best Picture. Not, not true. But I don't know who I would take who I would take out to make room for her with any five spaces available. It's a strong year, and Barbie should make its impact in winning writing categories across the board. It is fantastic to see a performance like Ryan is getting nominated. Comedian performances usually never receive net recognition. I don't know if the BAFTAs have a rule of six for their categories, but I'm more annoyed with their choices. Where is Greta and Best Director if Barbie has film, actor, actress, screenplay, costume, and production design nominations? Jacob Elordi's Best Performance is Priscilla, not Saltburn, I agree. It might not have been released in time but as he's the rising star award take him out of the main awards Mm. vivian Apara is nominated for leading actress in rye lane but not lily gladstone all of us strangers gets outstanding british film best supporting and director but nothing for andrew scott make it make sense as ever love the show all the best claire from your work email just on the thing about um why i said oppenheimer yeah we're commenting what we think will win versus what our picks were yeah we did actually comment on those but also the reason I kind of said Oppenheimer is because that's... Of all those films, I've seen that film twice. Same. I mean, I've seen Barbie twice, but like, like you know, Past Lives, and me Before, great films. I love this films. One of my, fa- my favourite yeah. films from last year. I've only seen one of them once, and I've watched mm-hmm. Oppenheimer again recently. And when I take my positive feeling towards that film, and I add the... And I look at the overwhelmingly warm critical reception it had, mm-hmm. and I add the overwhelming audience reception it had, and I also add in the overwhelming success the film had... Then, like no, you kind in of arrive as well. for myself, and I a slight kind of objective opinion that if that one best picture, yeah, that kind of squares all the things I'm happy with. Not no. that smaller films can't. Yeah. So, I'm not saying that it should have won because it made a lot of money if the film... That, that would go to Barbie anyway, but, yeah. like, it's more that that is one factor to show its popularity that that I personally, if I was to say what film should win, I would factor that in against those other things I just mentioned.
1: Um, it's like,
0: should deserve, should win, deserves to win, do I think I should win? And none of the, not, nothing's won yet, so we'll have to just <laughs> wait and see what, uh, also, what happens. Also, um, just because... Gre- I, I don't think Barbie's going to win Best Picture, but I, I don't think it's such a, a, a major contender really at all. No. Looking at the race, not my opinion, but... um, just because Greta didn't get nominated for director, that's not to say a, a film can't... Just because a director doesn't get nominated is not to say a film can't win Best Picture. There have been plenty mm. of films that won Best Picture but without the director yeah. um, being nominated, I believe. Um, but people care. That's the thing. The BAFTAs are crazier this year. The Oscars are one thing, but the BAFTAs ones I just don't make any... I don't mm. understand. Anyway, this next email is from Craig about The End We Start From, the Jodie Coma film that James reviewed, I think, about two weeks ago. Yeah. Hello, gents. Craig from Edinburgh here again. Here are my thoughts on the end we start from. Essentially, it's like watching a streaming series with all the action or tension cut out and you're left with the scenes where, if you're watching at home, you check your phone. I, f- I felt the budget hard as So that, way. I agree. If you watched that at home, it wouldn't work. Uh, but massive. other than that, I think the end we start from was actually surprisingly good, but. I felt the budget hard on this one. The obvious missing ac- action sequences and overabundance of tight framing close up shots. So you couldn't focus on any of the backgrounds too much. All felt very obvious. They didn't want, to inspe- want you to inspect the surroundings. Everything interesting, emotional or plot furthering incidents happened off screen. And because of this, that I felt married. no emotional connection to the characters, the story or the events as well as no tension at all. I was given nothing really to hope for about 20 minutes into the, about 30 minutes into the film I realized that none of the characters except for Zeb had names I didn't I think it actually bothered me until I noticed mm. that all of the you he she interactions between the characters it made me feel even less connection to them I will say however that a semi-realistic depiction of what probably would happen were the UK to be hit by a natural disaster of this scale. Um, want to see this done a thousand times better? Watch *Children of Men*. Yeah, I mean that's great. Or *Survivors*, the British TV series from 2008. That oh looked—I remember that looked rubbish. You got you telling me yeah. that was good? Thanks again for the pod and have a, have a great week, Craig. Craig, just on your thing about. Um, you know, the obvious missing action sequences and the overabundance of type framing, like, it means you felt the budget give them a chance they, yeah, they, they got, they got to, you know these films you got to give low budget films a chance to make make themselves i disagree i thought like the the off what what you're not privy to off camera is part of the strength of it and i really admired it it's, it's i don't think it's a budget thing it's it's just like a minimalist storytelling which i actually think compared with other stuff we usually get in that genre i found it very interesting and, and actually it worked for me emotionally towards the end but um i do i do i do totally think if you didn't see that in cinema It doesn't have nearly the same effect. Mm. It's true for all films, but you know. Uh, this next one is from Cameron who says, hello George and, George and James, second time writing in, hope you're both doing well. I finally caught up with your back catalog and I'm now condemned to waiting every week for an episode. What fresh hell is this? Special shout out to your 2023 review. I thought James's take on past lives was spot on. Me and my partner loved the film as well. It was heartbreaking, beautiful, and we're still talking about it. And I completely agree with George's favorite scene from Babylon, such a great moment. I work in film and TV, so I found it very relatable, if not a bit triggering And thought the scene was execute, executed brilliantly. I wanted to write in again because going through your episodes got me thinking how do you guys do what you do your podcast is of such high quality and i know you have busy lives which include full-time jobs so i was interested in what goes into making each episode do you guys meet to brainstorm ideas then spend a few days researching slash watching films what do you edit on avid premiere final cut etc and what's your approach to that is there a contingency plan if james gets arrested at the airport for <laughs> having a leatherman blade i guess i'm interested in what the weekly production schedule of pulp kitchen looks like hope that's not too personal of a question obviously don't reveal any trade secrets sorry for the long email keep up the good work all the best Cameron except for my iPhone guys come in team production team come in <laughs> yeah. it's us it's us um, uh we see films every week anyway we do talk every day about the show and what yep. we're doing and where it goes but we don't editorialize it now we're very no, much it's t- it's we know that we are going to cover new releases yeah if we get early access to something that's usually uh, we, it's quite easy to know just from the marketing cycle what the big films is of that week uh, we edit on premiere pro um, we don't really research. We'll sort of independently make notes and plan yes. our thoughts, yeah. but I don't necessarily research for long amounts no, of time. Most of my time is I spent think, editing. I think also because we're trying to give, you know, we will have enough information to to be useful for for the film. So to say, you know, who directed it, and what they've done before, and Yeah. That kind of thing. And, But I think we don't ever want to, uh, we're trying to give a review that's based on our feelings towards the film, you know, and, 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 a, and, a, and a, we don't want to have much we don't want to i don't know we've never actually spoken about this but i think in a way it's like we're not here to to break down all the production notes and give you all the facts that could be interesting but also in a way that like you guys don't have that going you guys don't have that when you go into the cinema so we don't want to we i think we've very clearly taken the structure and format of a radio format film review right and we've taken that into into our show um but yeah it's, it takes a lot of time it takes an extraordinary amount of time to do a podcast properly yeah. and thank you for your compliments on it we thank just do, we do just genuinely care that yeah. it's the best it can be sounds the best it can be looks the, looks the best it can be and is consistent and that's the uh, that's the tough part about it but the camera you're very kind this next email is from Matthew who emails in and says hi both um, past lives is up for best picture but doesn't feature in any major categories other than the original screenplay whereas NIAD seems to be in contention for a number of categories but isn't in best Check picture George's review last week do you think there is there needs to be a review of the Oscars nomination process with bi- the big snubs? Sub, uh, the big snubs, including Barbie, Saltburn, and all of us strangers, getting fewer nods than expected, where a film like Past Lives, which I really liked, is winning over naiad which I haven't seen, despite the latter getting more nominations overall. That might have rambled a bit. Sorry, Matt. Um, well, just on that question, also what was t- touched on in a previous email about like it's all to do with lobbying, right? It's all mm. it's all a ruse, guys. It's all about lobbying. It's just like the film companies will. You, you you know the voting body is only so big, and those people are, are just people who make up a voting body, and they only have a certain number of time in an awards in in the months preceding an awards show to watch things, because you don't want to get their attention too early, because they'll forget about it. So, mm. lobby. There are awards departments in every major movie studio, whose job it is, is to make sure that people are thinking about your film and and are voting for it. Not the public, the the voting body. They'll be putting on screeners, they'll be putting on mixers, they'll be putting on Q&As, they'll be putting on- By the way, the day after the Oscar nominations came out, I went to the cinema and they had, there was already an Oppenheimer trailer with all the stars and the reviews and nominated for blah, 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 blah. blah. That was ready to go the next day in cinemas. And ultimately it is, and, and therefore the bigger, the more budget you have, the more you can pay for the extra screenings that the, the- the the gift baskets, all all that kind of lobbying. Mm. It doesn't win Oscars. You can't pay for an Oscar, but it's like it's in the mind. It's it's in the mind. That's the thing. And if you if you're a really tiny film, sometimes you get to break through, which mm. which is which is great. I don't know if that answers your question, Matt. But two more emails today. Oh, and also like you say, Saltburn is a big snub. Not for us. Not for personally us, no at way. all. Um, but I know mean, other people like that film. Yeah. This one is from Huell, who says, "Hi guys, long time listener. Absolutely love the podcast. I've listened to a few over the years, and I've never found one that chimes with me as much to the point where I can take your recommendations as." God and dive right in, something I've always found difficult to do when recommending films by friends. Up until now, or don't be disappointed if we have a review, an opinion soon that you just completely disagree with, (laughs) that's okay. Uh, Up until now, I've not had a reason to write in. That was until I watched Butcher's Crossing this week. Having just finished Red Dead Redemption 2, after five years of off-and-again, on-again, it's such a five years on-and-off-again game, uh, I fancied a period piece of the same setting with a bit of a twist. I stumbled upon Butcher's Crossing and gave it a go. What a... Right. Nicholas Cage plays Miller, an intense and recalcitrant buffalo hunter looking for funding for one last great buffalo hunt as the herds slowly shrink with the overhunting during this time. Fred Hershinger plays the college dropout, naive enough to find this pipe dream. Jeremy Bob also stars as the expert pelter needed to aid the mission. I'm basically writing in because it has been a week since I've watched this film and I still have no idea whether I actually enjoyed it yet. Huh. The acting was good, Cage and Bob in particular lifting the film with their brilliant portrayal of hardened men with nothing to lose in an even harder wilderness however the use of gore and hallucinations to frame the feeling of cabin fever the group experienced later on in the story was so well done and powerful it was actually quite off-putting when people ask me what i've watched recently i ask about butcher's crossing i don't know what to reply with it's a weird film that did its job so well i came away not really sure if i enjoyed it do you guys have a film that has done similar is this maybe an example of a film that doesn't owe me anything let alone a sense of enjoyment content wants this Wants the credit to con- a sense of enjoyment slash content once the credits roll. Uh, P.S. I spent nearly three years listening to you guys on my lunch bake, tucking into a meal deal. I concluded that James is a chicken bacon lettuce sandwich with salt and vinegar crisps and a can of Coke, and George is a chicken Caesar wrap with some Monster Munch and a Pepsi Max. Am I close? Thanks. Uh, Howell. I've not not at all. Not Monster Munch, Uh, never. uh, Chicken BLT, no. Salt and vinegar crisps, bang on, and then I don't like Coke. Never Really? Yeah. My me? mum really did well. She never allowed it in the house. And you know yeah. when you're young and if you've never tried Coke, you're just convinced that I don't like it because I've never had it. So I spent a lot of my childhood being like, oh, I don't like Coke. I've, I don't really have, have never had it before. And then I got old enough to just like have it myself and I never, I never understood Coke as a flavour. It's right. not a fruit. It's not a... Yeah, it's nice though. I mean, I, I, this is an advert. I know it's bad. Yeah. I only have, I would say... So a lot of people swear by it. Four Coca-Colas... A year. Yeah, right? But yeah. when I do, my God, I enjoy really, it. And yeah. you've got to make sure that it's either out of a bottle or a can, never a plastic bottle. Yeah. A glass bottle is what I mean. On oh, ice, I usually, my favorite time to drink a Coke is when it's so hot. Yeah, that's, that's what people, like, a lot of people say. Like, Where some people like cereal diet Coke drinkers, Cokeers, or they'll get, go to five guys and they get a Coke with it. I've never, Oh no. and I just, I try the flavor and I'm not anti it. I just don't, it just tastes sickly and chemically. Um, so no, I never ever drink coke. I do not have one coke a year. I don't have meal deals often. No, I think if I do get a sandwich, it will just be like this sort of more premium ham and cheese one. Why you think the less, the, the, the less, the more simple it is, the less bad it is for you? No, so pa- packaged supermarket sandwiches oh, yeah, are on. so bad for you. They have forty ingredients in them. Yeah, um, it's terrifying. But no, no, I'm, yeah, I, I do like smoked salmon cream cheese, but I know that is a psychopath sandwich. Um, it's like ordering no. a fillet of fish at McDonald's. It's just weird. Uh, you don't do it. Here we go. You like a fillet of fish? Never. I, I've never yeah. had it. Never had it in my life. So I wouldn't yeah, yeah. Know. You wouldn't. What's happening? Cream cheese there. Uh, if you would said yes, I would have just. <laughs> right. I was gonna go check something. The <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, sorry. Just on the question of a film that. Oh, can I just say, if you didn't, if you still work it out, if you didn't know if you enjoyed it, you didn't, um, frankly. It, you might not not enjoyed it, mm-hmm. but like, you know, you know when a film is, and it's just not about entertaining. It's like, you know when a film has worked for you. And if you're yeah. sat there scratching your head thinking, oh, did, I, did that work for me? You're like, Maybe probably not. Did. It probably sits at a three star out of five for you. Yeah. Guys, we still have plenty more emails. Thank you so much for sending them in. We will do our best to get to them in the coming weeks. Please do keep sending them in to hello at popkitchenpodcast.com. We'll read them out on future episodes. George, should we end with some games? James, we're going to play some games now, and it's my turn to put you in the hot seat. We've got two rounds today. We've got another round of have these two people been in a movie together? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I also have a good old castless countdown for you, okay? So, James, we're going to begin with the uh, co-star combos, as we called it. It Co-star combos. And I have some co-star combos. Uh I'm going to read them to you. And you have to tell me whether or not, yes or no, quick fire, have they been in a film together? Okay. Okay? Play along at home. Just checking. Co-star combos. It's co-star combos. James, are you ready to play co-star combos? Yes. Okay, have these two actors been in a movie together? Ryan Gosling and Amanda Seyfried. Gosling and Seyfried. Ah, let's go for, no. No, they haven't. Courtney Cox and Jenna Ortega. Yes, Scream Six. Well done, and five. Michael Shannon and Bill Murray. Michael Shannon and, yes, uh, Groundhog Day. Well done. Jeff Bridges and Kevin James. (laughs) Oh, I'm gonna go no? No. Joaquin Phoenix and Chris Pratt. Ooh, I'm going to go no. No, they have. It was Her, the movie Her. Oh, of course, yeah. John Malkovich and Dave Chappelle. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I'm going to go no, but is it a yes? It's a yes. They're in Con Air together. (laughs) Uh, Amy Adams and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Ooh, I'm going to go no. No, correct. Harrison Ford and Ben Kingsley. Oh. I'm going to guess yes, but I don't know what Yes it is. is the right answer. The movie Ender's Game. If you oh, remember yes, that, the yes, sci-fi yeah, movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson. Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson. i going to go yes. Yes, The Island. Michael Bay's yes, The Island. Do yes, you remember? Yes, I remember, yeah. And lastly, Emma Thompson and Will Ferrell. Oh, have they done like a... I'm going to go... Yes. Yes, the movie Stranger than Fiction from 2006. I didn't know what for, but it sounded familiar. That's the one where she's the author and he's she's writing it and it's in his head and he hears yes. it. But you did okay yeah. there. That's good. Yeah. You yeah. know, some some co- co-stars are like, "Oh yeah, they did a movie yeah. together." Some it's always hard because some the reverse psychology of people who just definitely have yes. now therefore because you mentioned it, the likelihood of them having been in a film together like actually significantly increases. Uh, that was fun. Which Enjoyed brings that. us nicely onto cast countdown nice. because i saw this cast list and i thought i can't believe we haven't done this one before really? so james explain the rules for the kids for the kids at home cast countdown is a game in which i will read out the cast list of a movie and james has to guess the movie before i reach the end of the cast list mm-hmm. i will mm-hmm. start with some pe- some famous people in there are they the leads are they not we don't know so beginning with your cast list countdown james mm-hmm. guess the movie from the cast in three two one Halle Berry, Catwoman, Pedro Pascal, <sighs> Jeff Bridges, oh, Mark Strong, Mark Strong, Julianne Moore. Is it Kingsman Two? It is. Yeah. And we had Channing Tatum, Colin Firth, and Taron Egerton. After that, yeah. Kingsman Two: The Golden Pile of so, Crap. I've oh heard. God. Yeah. I really heard, didn't get on with it. I've heard it's. Garbage. Real garbage. Yeah, I did not watch it. No, no I've never yeah. seen it. I've just only heard. But that cast list, I was just like, oh my God. I didn't mention uh, Elton John and yeah, Elton Poppy John. Delevingne as well. And Keith Allen and Bruce Greenwood as well, apparently. You know, like the first Kingsman, I didn't mind. Yes. I thought it was funny yeah. and I thought it was like, you know, it, it, it breeded a new lease of life into into the action genre. And it felt, even though it's probably not, felt quite distinct and individual. Um, and then I thought the second one just didn't click with me. And I didn't find it as funny. I didn't find it as charming. Um, it felt I felt too aware of it being a film being played to me I think it got quite I mean it's got a lot of the problems that Argyle has but basically I think also kind of then they didn't know what to do with it then they made a prequel called The King's Man which I thought was so forgettable terrible title I didn't even think that Matthew Vaughan directed that but he did Oh wow! Uh, And so I don't know what the future is of that franchise. Did that make money? Like his Kings, they must be trying to do a Kingsman three with Taron Egerton and what? what? Oh, Kingsman back back? uh, Yeah, a a, a third sequel. Yeah, Um, I don't know. I think Taron Egerton can go do better things now. Yeah, he's a big star. He's free now. He's very talented. as well You're free. Yeah. What's he got coming up, Taron Egerton? I like the first Kingsman because it was kind of that like My Fair Lady thing. You know, you're taking someone from across the tracks and kind of buttering them up. And Colin Firth. yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that was the episode that was, and those are the games we played. Guys, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Pop Kitchen we really appreciate you spending your time with us don't forget we post new episodes of this show every single Wednesday and continue please to follow us on social media even more so now than ever because we post content that is not on this show on that channel yeah go follow new film Both Bites. channels yeah film fun Bites. creators fun film creators giving their hot takes yeah the hot takes it's really good fun and yeah so make sure you like and follow and subscribe and share and comment and just basically give us as much love as you can because it really helps us grow we really do appreciate it can you rate us on your, the app That you're listening to us on right now, if it's Spotify, if it's Apple, if it's YouTube, thumbs up. It really does help us grow the show. If you are a person in any sort of position of power, or you know someone who's in any sort of position of power, marketing budget, please recommend the show to them, please, and tell them what a great time you have. I listen to it. That would really help us a lot. If your name is John Spotify. Let's chat, Stephen. Spotify, you know? Stephen. Spotify, <laughs> yeah, Spotify. <laughs> um, and then that would be great. Um, other than that, check out our bonus on one day coming later this week. But I just hope you have a wonderful week. Have, have a time. good bye Bye, guys. <laughs>